Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Passover prep learning series. It was our first year of marriage. And um, the, the, in the months before Passover, as it happens in rabbinical school, we were studying the laws of Passover. So then as now, my wife starts making Passover the day after Purim. Okay. So, you know, I, and I showed her, I said, look, I can show you in the Shulchan Aruch. You don't have to do all this stuff. Right. And she said to me, get out of here. You're not going to trape up my kitchen. And who was her authority? Her authority was her mother. <laughs> right? um, so, um, I mean, you need to understand that there is the legal tradition. And then there is what people actually do in their kitchen. That is primarily women until very recently that did in their kitchen. Right. Um, so the men wrote the laws and the women actually did whatever they did. Right. Um, and usually, like my wife, usually what the women did was far more far more um, stringent than what the man said was re- was required, right? So, I mean, um, you know, what I'm going to, to say uh, is what is in the law, but you need to know that there are a number of family customs that have come down from generations that, uh, and if you're doing them and, and you find meaning in them, fine, <laughs> whatever you'd like, okay? Now, the one, the one, the one piece of this, though, that I, I do want to warn you about is that um, because generally during the course of the year, if, uh, well, the typical example is if a drop of meat gets into a meat soup by, a drop of milk, I mean, gets into a meat soup by accident, then it is batel vashishim. It is nullified if it is less than 160th of the volume of the meat soup, right? So, but on but in on Passover, chametz is a sur It's it's forbidden in any amount, right? So that piece of it um, has led Jews all over the world uh, to to uh, to have whatever piece of them that is anal compulsive comes to comes to light, right? And people, you know, I mean, they go crazy over this stuff, right? So, I mean. Let me just say, you don't have to go crazy over this, right? There is, you know, there, there is a, a reasonable ground here, right? Where you can be serious about observing the laws of Passover without going crazy. And one last thing, um, this is, I, I, I mean, Passover, like all of the other rituals of the Jewish tradition, are, are part of what makes it so rich, okay? And, and it is really part of what, you know, what we all... Um, either dread or look forward to, depending upon uh, where you are at this. As a matter of fact, Ron Wilson did a book on uh, Passover and quotes Rabbi Shatz's mother, um, who says that after, after Purim, um, uh, what, what did she say? I start, I start making lists and um, I forgot what the, the, the rest of it was, right? But it was just so funny because, you know, that's probably what happens in a, in a lot of homes. Um, the um, but the point is that yeah I mean it is it, it it requires a lot of preparation and changing things and all of that and you know and and all of you know what's happening in my house is that I'm ha- all of a sudden I have all of these uh, very hummets the kinds of soups that are being that Marlon's making and to get rid of whatever in the in the pantry right um, 
So you, yeah, I mean, you know, that's, that's what happens. Um, but the, and there's less and less of the, of the kitchen that I get to use starting literally the day after Purim. Um, but, the, um, but, but, but let me just say that all of that, uh, you know, just trying to try to remain reasonable about all of this. And, and definitely probably the most important thing is don't let this get in the way of personal relationships. Right. I mean, don't, don't, don't um, let it be that, you know, you're, you're very stringent and then you look down your nose at people who are less stringent or something like that. Right. That you really don't, should not do. Um, and, and that includes things like, you know, uh, I was just talking to my rabbinical students this afternoon. I said, if you're going to your parents' home and your parents are not as religious as you are, you really need to come to come sign, to come to some kind of accommodation. Right. Um, because honor your father and mother is in the Ten Commandments and neither Passover nor Kashrut is. Right. And um, and so you need to sort of put these things in perspective. Um, and similarly, I mean, it's COVID. So probably people are not going to be visiting uh, each other, um, you know, in person. But um, when we go back to normal, um, if you if you you know, if you're going to been invited to somebody else's house and. You, you have, you're reasonably assured that that person knows how to make Pesach. Don't ask questions. Okay. Um, just simply, uh, accept whatever, uh, whatever that person has done. So again, assuming that the person has a reasonable sense of what it means to make Passover. Okay. There are, there, there are all kinds of differences, um, among, and by the way, these are, these are reflected in the codes, in the codes of Jewish law. Um, there are all kinds of differences, um, in terms of exactly how you make Passover. And um, and uh, so don't be surprised if those kinds of differences um, come to the fore when you t- start talking to your friends or your family members or whatever. All right. Um, let me let me start from the beginning, as it were. A very good place to start, according to... All right. Anyway, um, the, um, uh, the, 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 what is Chametz? is... One of the five grains that the Torah is talking about, uh, namely wheat, oats, barley, spelt, and rye, uh, one of those five grains that is combined with yeast and water and and allowed to rise and and baked so that it would rise. All right, that's chametz. Now, and so those are the that's the stuff that is really forbidden on Passover. Okay. Um, then there are derivatives of that. In other words, things that are made out of some that, that where, where that that gets changed in some ways, chemically, especially. Um, and then it, it gets used in, in different ways. So those in regard. So those are the issues in regard to foods, which I understand Rabbi Shaz talked about um, uh, earlier in this series. Um, so I'm not going to go any further with that, uh, except to say that. You really need to distinguish between that which is really forbidden, namely bread and things like it, as opposed to second, secondarily forbidden in terms of being derivatives of these things, uh, especially in terms of things like like alcohol and whiskey and things like that, right? Um, or in sometimes in uh, in food um, in food flavorings and things like that. You have to little, be a little bit worried about that. And then there are things that are by custom you don't eat. Ketoneod, of course, is the obvious example, and um, and the conservative movement, um, both in Israel and in the United States, has said that ketoneod are permitted on on uh, Passover, and I voted for that 
but there will be no ketonyote in my house on Passover because right? Marlon doesn't want them. All right. So um, it's a um, and that's all fine. I mean, we'll all survive for the now nine days of Passover this year. Um, the um, OK, now let me uh, what I'm supposed to talk about is how you kosher your house. My guess is that most of the people on this call already know how to do that. But in any case, what um, I've asked Rabbi Schatz to do is to um, is to email you or to from, from uh, the, uh, the the Passover guide that the rabbinical assembly produces every year, uh, which talks a lot, which, which which gives all the details about how you do this. Um, and let me just say, it's not uh, it doesn't really have to be uh, all that complicated. Um, and exactly how you do it um, depends upon your kitchen and uh, depends also upon your uh, you know, man, you know, whether you are uh, whether you're going to have completely separate uh, set of dishes and pots and pans uh, for Passover, as well as the utensils, uh, or whether you're going to try to kosher some of the things that you use during the course of the year in order to be able to use them for Passover. So some people um, have a completely set a different set of dishes and pots and pans and and uh, utensils, forks, knives, spoons, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, they sort of put, a, you know, they, they close one set of cabinets and then open another. Or when we first moved here, our Passover things were in the garage. So I was making a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of trips to the garage and back again, taking out the, uh, the uh, regular uh, dishes and, and pots and pans and bringing in the Passover ones. And then we remodeled the kitchen. So and we had a uh, non-Jewish contractor. And he didn't understand why we wanted so many cabinets in the kitchen. <laughs> so so I, I, I tried to explain to him a little bit, and he looked at me really, really queer-eyed. I mean, it was, um, but we have all those cabinets, and that's that's what happens in our house now. Um, but you need to be able to afford all of that, if, both in terms of just the money and also uh, the space. Um, and for, a lot of people cannot. And... Uh, and that's perfectly fine. So that's the reason why you have uh, ways of kosharing uh, those kinds of things. So the basic idea is that you take the biggest pot that you have and you fill it with water and you bring it to a boil and it will splash over and you get your kitchen messy with water. Right. Um, but then you again, it gets messier still because then you put in the next largest pots and the next largest pots and so on. Right. Um, and leave them uh, in for a little while, and then finally the the the, the sport the forks, the spoons, and the knives, um, those kinds of things. Um, and uh, and you just put them in all metal things like that. You can put in boiling water, and that koshers them. Uh, but you also uh, do not use them for 24 hours afterward, right? To make sure that there really is a distinction between your use of them for non-Passover uses and and for Passover uses. Um, they're um, earthenware. You're you're not able to kosher in that way. Um, so um, if the uh, if it really is earthenware, then then you're really going to have to to get some other kinds of dishes or things like that. Um, but it, you don't have to. Um, you know, the, you you can get. I mean, I, I remember when we first moved here back in 1971. Um, we just bought Melmac. It was called at the time. You could. Uh, I don't even know if it exists anymore. But it's um. Uh, just you can get service for eight or 10 or something like that or more um, at, at a, a very reasonable price. And they look sort of fine. And 
uh, we weren't embarrassed to invite invite friends over uh, for Passover using those dishes. And um, and aside from that, everybody understands that Passover is different, and um, you know whatever happens happens. Um, the um, uh, basically toaster ovens you can't kosher. I mean, let's I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Um, the uh, ovens you uh, clean out, and then if you have a self cleaning oven, then you know clean it out and use the self cleaning feature on it um, and then let it cool down and then clean it out again and you're done, right? Um, if you don't have a self-cleaning oven, uh, then again, clean it out um, and then turn it on to the highest um, temperature that it goes and let it go there for an hour or so um, and, uh, and then let it cool down and clean it out again and you're done. Um, there are some who really who require like a blowtorch or something like that, I think. That's way overboard. Um, it's a. Um, this is my position anyway. Uh, I think it's just perfectly fine if you if it goes to the highest temperature, it can go, and you leave it there for an hour and empty. Uh, Diana, um, to quote a certain thing from Passover. Um, the um, in terms of um, oh, in terms of glassware, um, well, my mother, Allah Shalom. Um, was really smart and really in this world. She was valedictorian of her college graduating class. But in our house, when I was growing up, she put all of the uh, of the um, dishes and also the silverware in the bathtub and filled the bathtub with water, right? Left it there for 24 hours, drained the bathtub, filled it again, and did it a third time as well, right? I mean, you just... You do not have to do this, all right? With glassware, all you have to do is wash it and let and then and let let it stand for 24 hours without using it, uh, and then it's it's kosher for Passover, okay? Um, the um, and by the way, all kidding aside, um, the same sort of thing. By the way, with your uh, dishwasher, uh, let it let it stand for 24 hours without use, and and let it go through a, a one cycle without. Uh, any dishes in it, and it's kosher for Passover. Um, remember, we are living in Southern California, um, and this year we got very little rain. Um, so you do have to, in, in any of these procedures where you, you know, you, uh, there's some people who had three the three different cycles that they put their dishwasher through to make it kosher for Passover. First of all, you don't need to do that, but in Southern California, uh, with the drought that we are about to have, uh, I, I think it's really irresponsible, um, and it, it's certainly not necessary. Um, so the um, so I mean I think you have to take into account, you know, where we're living and what the realities are, and uh, as well as what you know the law would say. Um, the um, uh, a metal sink can be kosher the same way that you kosher any other kind of uh, metal things. That is, pour boiling water over it. Similarly, mo many counters, uh, now when we first moved here, uh, the counter that we had was not, um, you know, could not be kosher by simply boiling, boiling, boiling water of it. So I had to put this sticky kind of cover over it, um, which is hard enough to put on it and then even harder to take off at the end of Passover. Um, so when we renovated our kitchen, uh, we got um, uh, Caesarware, as I think it's called, because um, it comes from Caesarea. Um, and it came with a letter saying that from a rabbi saying that in order to capture this, all you have to do is pour boiling water over it. Um, 
So that's what we do with our counters. Now, if you have wood counters, you really can't do that. Um, if you had, if you have wood counters, then you really will have to cover them. Um, cover them with all you need is uh, some kind of a tablecloth, or, or you know, actually, what probably is better, especially in the kitchen, is something that that won't absorb liquid. That will, you know, that will that will um, be more uh, usable that way. Um, but uh, so if you have a, wood countertops, you probably will have to cover them in some way. Um, but if it can take boiling water, if the kind of countertop that you have can take boiling water, then that's really all you need to do. Um, and um, and what you will, will probably happen in your house as in ours, there will be some pieces of it that you'll make Passover for Passover first. And then you, and then, you know, whereas during the rest of the time, oh, wait, I'll get rid of it. Oh, that's that's Michael. Hold on just a moment. Hi, Michael. I'm teaching right now. Can I call you back? Okay. I'm talking. Bye-bye. Um, the, um, so the thing is that it's a um, you know, family's family. Um, the, um, so, so the thing is that... I just, wanted, it, I just wanted you to say, Michael, don't you know I'm teaching? I can't, <laughs> didn't, you, didn't you read your emails to know that I'm teaching right now? I can't answer the phone right now. I was actually hoping it was Rabbi Klickfeld so that you could say the same thing. But anyway, continue. I see. I see. <laughs> All right. Um, the um, so I mean I think that's the um, that's the basic idea in terms of how you you capture your kitchen and um, so maybe I should just stop here and uh, and take whatever questions you have. Great. Okay. Um, I see Renee's hand up. If anybody else has questions, just put your hand up. I will call on you um, and we'll do it that way. Okay, Renee. So okay. when you mentioned. Koshering, like the, if you want to do the glasses, you can just you just have to wash it out. Do you use a sfog that's for Passover or a sfog that's for not Passover? Uh, uh, okay, so the well, the easiest way to do it actually is uh, you probably wash your glasses in your dishwasher. If you have a, if you have a dishwasher, yeah, right. So just wash your glasses in, in the dishwasher, right, and then. Take just again, really for symbolic reasons, not because you're worried about chametz. To be very honest, but for symbolic reasons, take your 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 sponge for Passover and just wash it one more time, just for symbolic reasons, right? But if you put it through the dishwasher, whatever was on, if your dishwasher works, right, whatever, <laughs> right, whatever was on the glasses will disappear, right, and go down the drain. So I mean, truthfully, once you have washed them. Once you have put your glassware through the dishwasher, it is it's kosher every single time you do it. As a matter of fact, um, my the year before my and I got married, uh, my first year of graduate school, I was rooming with two other guys, and one of them uh, was a member of the Orthodox synagogue um, where um, Haskell Lukstein was the assistant rabbi. His father was the the rabbi. He was the assistant rabbi, um, and um, his uh, this my roommate had. Uh, my roommate's mother had a set of glass dishes. And so we asked him whether we could use glass dishes for both milchik and fleshik during the yeah. year. And he said, yes. Really? And I have to tell you, I have to tell why, because every time you wash glass dish, glass dish, you're kashering it. But only if you now do I it in a dishwasher, because otherwise, what do you wash it with? You wash it with the meat sfog or the dairy well, sfog? Well, depending upon what you put on it. So, if you had meat on it, so you washed it with the meat uh, a sponge, and if you had milk, you washed it with the milk sponge, right? 
Um, and I have to tell you, it was really odd. I mean, even though I tend to be Mayhill on some of these things, right? But it was really odd. And if you have if you have anything like enough money to buy a set of Melmac or something like that, I would really recommend having separate uh, dishes for, for milk and meat. But the fact of the matter is that and the way that Jewish law sees it is that there are really three different categories of material. There is glassware, which is presumed to be completely non-porous. So because it's completely non-porous, every time you wash it, you're effectively conjuring it. Okay. Second, only if it's metal. in a dishwasher, right? But, but even if you know, even just regular washing, assuming you want, especially if you're washing with detergent, right? Because detergent is 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 it gets into the the substance of the of the of the material that you're using it on uh, much more thoroughly than soap does. Um, so it's a so if you're if you're simply washing it, you're conjuring it every time. Metal is the middle one, and for that you need to to do it through boiling water. And then earthenware, you cannot touch it, right? Except if you don't use it in fine china, if you don't use it for a year, um, then there are those who would say that uh, you may, it, it then has been koshered and you can use it for whatever you want to use it for. Um, but by and large, those are the three categories. So then when you get modern things, uh, like, um, you know, when you get um, corningware or you get, um, Pyrex, or you get whatever you get, some of the, these modern uh, te- these modern materials. The, the the halachic question is, from a chemical point of view, is it more like glass, or is it more like metal, or is it more like earthenware? And so one of the things that has happened on the law committee, this is now for decades, is that whenever you get one of these new kinds of materials, we send it to a chemist, and we ask the chemist. Um, is it, it, if you had to analogize it to one of these things, basically we're asking what is the degree of porosity? How porous is it? What is the degree of porosity? And is it more like glass? Is it more like metal or is it more like earthenware? Um, so that's how we came, came to, to we, that is the law committee decades ago came to decide that uh, Pyrex is like glass. Um, and so it can be captured simply by washing out, right? Um, but the, um, uh, which again, Marlon doesn't like at all. Okay. Um, and, um, that's my Mora. <laughs> okay. What can I say? Uh, but that's what the chemist told us. All right. So, um, but it's, um, and, and see, basically the point being you know, here, I think Marlon's right about something about, she's right about a lot of things, but I mean, here, here's about this particular thing, because you don't, you don't really cook in glassware in the same sort of a way that you can cook in pyrex or in corningware, right? Um, so in that sense, pyrex and corningware are more like metal than they are like glass, even though in terms of porosity, they're more like glass than they are like metal, right? So it's a really a question of, are you looking at what the substance of the material is or are you looking in the way that it's used? So putting it in dirt for it doesn't count. Pardon me? Putting it in dirt. I, when I was growing up, my mother, if she ever, ever made a, a, a mistake or whatever, she would put whatever in the dirt. First. In the dirt. And, yeah, I, I've heard that as well. No, it, it doesn't really count. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> Rabbi, Rabbi Alexander, who learned from Rabbi Dorf, um, used to teach us about Pyrex, that if you do cook in it and you can't remove the stains, that you have to treat it like metal. So you would right. have to put boiling water over it and then put it in a dishwasher if you if you wish. Um, and, but if it's just regular Pyrex that doesn't have any stains or any residue behind, you can just put it in the dishwasher and and it's fine, just like that's other. Right. That's right. That, yes, that, that, that's exactly right. And and um and that was the thing that Marlon kept saying, right? The, but the Pyrex gets stained, and, and so you've got to assume that there's a residue there and all of that, right? So I mean, um, so it's a question. So again, here the substance would lead you in one direction. Uh, and the use would lead you in the other direction. So clearly, you know, if you're if you're if you're putting the Pyrex or the Corningware into the oven and cooking in it, then treat it like metal, right? And and use uh, boiling water to caution it. Um, okay. Okay. We have one question in the chat, and then I'm going to call on the three people who have their hands up. So Annette Berman asked, "Can tile counters which have grout be koshered by hot water?" Um, yeah, I mean, it, see, it's there are those who would say yes and those who would say no. What else is new? Um, the, um, the 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 issue is not the tile. The tile is probably um, you know is probably like marble or something on that order. The, the issue is the grout, and the question is how how clean can you get that, um, and will the grout withstand the boiling water? Most most of them will, right? Um, and so if it can withstand, I mean, I think that's the sort of the rule of thumb. If it can withstand being cleaned with boiling water, then do it that way, um, and um, and and you've captured your your countertop. Okay. Uh, the one thing is though that if you're not sure, I don't want I don't want you to ruin your you ruin your kitchen doing this stuff, right? So if you're if you have any doubts as to whether you know if, if you pour boiling water over the the grout, that the grout is just going to disintegrate. Right. If that's what's going to happen, then don't do that. Uh, right. Use. Uh, and even if you have any doubts about that, um, then you're better off covering your countertop and uh, and, and just you know working on the cover. OK, okay. Um, Michelle and then Rebecca and then Fumi and then Barry. Uh, hi, I was going to ask about the best way to kosher the refrigerator. Oh, thank you. I forgot to mention that. Um, so. The, the the best way to do that is to uh, it, well, you have to take everything out of it, right? And you clean it as thoroughly as you possibly can clean it. Um, and because it is, um, uh, and again, depending upon what it's made of and that kind of stuff, um, if you can put hot water, it doesn't have to be boiling, but if you can put hot water on the surfaces, that's probably best because that will really clean it more than you would ever clean it normally right if you can't do it don't because remember everything in the refrigerator is cold by definition right um and so consequently you, you're not presuming that it's getting into the metal in the same degree that if you're cooking in metal right um so um so clean it out as thoroughly as you can uh and then again um uh and then you know and again if you can do it with with hot water um it doesn't really have to be boiling. Boiling is 212 degrees, right? All it has to be is yad soletipo. That is, it's it's hot enough so that if you stuck your finger in it, you would flinch, right? Um, so the 
And that's roughly, I was told by some chemists that it's about 117 degrees, um, which is about half of what, a little bit more than half of what boiling would be, right? So, so if it can be just hot water um, that you use for cleaning your refrigerator, uh, that's enough. And, uh, and then, you know, dry it out and put the food back, um, right? I, I, that's, that's all that you really have to do. Their freezer might be a little bit harder. It depends upon whether, um, you know, whether there's, there's ice caked around it and all of that, in which case you're going to have to defrost it first and all of those things, right? But, um, but if, if, you're, if you don't have a lot of frost in your, in your freezer, uh, then, then it's basically the same thing. Rebecca. Okay. Yeah, you alluded to this a little bit, but I wanted to ask about this notion of a found object where something hasn't been used for at least a year. So if you inherit something and you don't know how it was used, maybe it's even from an unkosher household, can, can you use it? Is, is serving platter, china, metal platter, what, yes. what do you say? Yes, yes. And especially when, um, you know, this is, especially if it's, if it's expensive, like china and things like that. But even if it's not, if it hasn't been used for a year, then the presumption is that anything that got into it uh, became tom leaf gum, as the as the as uh, the, the halachic category. It became uh, whatever was into it would taste terrible, right? So you would never want to use it as food, um, and so it then becomes nullified that way. Um, but only, but only if it's if it's you know been for a year and all of that kind of stuff. So yes, if you find something, um, or even you know like during the year you. You find family china or something that comes to you and you have no idea how it was used. Or maybe you do know exactly what it was used. It was used for trade food, right? You might, you, you might know exactly the way it was used. Um, well, if you don't, if you wash it and then don't use it for a year, um, it's a, then, then you can use, then it's parrot. Then you can use it for anything you want. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Barry. Uh, hi. Uh, so, as a ceramist uh, who works with glazed pottery, ah, there we go. Yes. Okay. So, um, glaze, by definition, um, it, 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 these are uh, um, metal oxides which are mixed in water, so it looks like paint, but it's metal oxides. It's p- applied onto the earthenware which is then taken to a very high temperature so the metal oxides melt and coalesce. And so bring it down to a normal temperature, it is metal. They're covered in metal. looks like glass, but it's covered in metal. Uh, how do you treat this for kashri? Um With difficulty. Okay. Um, um, what I mean by that is this, um, that um, I think based upon the analysis that you just gave us, namely as to what exactly goes on in terms of uh, some contemporary contemporary processes of ceramics, right? It is, you, it is probably non-porous, I would imagine, um, and therefore should be treated at least as metal, maybe even as glass, right? Depending upon the degree to which it is non-porous. The problem is that... Um, the um, first of all, the law was was created at a time when earthenware was not um, was not covered in that way, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and and so there's a kind of suspicion about whether uh, it can change in category, uh, even with these kinds of modern methods. Um, but the other piece of it is, once you do it, um, could you use it in the oven? Uh, yes. 
Okay. Um, and could you pour boiling water over it? Yes. Uh, if it's cold, you want to wait till it warms up before to put it on. But yes, you, you can put boiling water. You can put it into boiling water. Yes. All right. so then, okay. So if you get something that Barry did, then you can use it as if it were metal. Okay. Because then you know exactly how the glaze was put on. Okay. Uh, the problem is that from one manufacturer to another, um, unless you really check it all out, right, you don't know what the covering is made of. Um, so so my, my, my glazed pottery, I, I, I won't wash it like glass. I need to dip it in boiling water like metal. Okay. Right, because right? it, it has some porosity to it is what you're saying. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm sorry. It, uh, it's metal oxide. It's not, a gla not glass. I understand. I understand. So for costuring, am I treating it like metal, which you dip into boiling water, yeah. or treat it like glass where you wash it? Well, it depends. It, you would need a chemical analysis of exactly how porous it is, right, in order to, for me to answer that question. Okay. Um, and, um, but, I mean, you know, if you can, the, the, the more stringent position would be that you use boiling water. So if you can use boiling water on it, that's what I would do. Thank you. Sure. Yes, Frumi and then Henry. Oh, sorry, wait. I have to unmute you. There you go. Hi, my question is just how to kosher the stovetop. How to kosher again, please? The stovetop. Oh, the stovetops. Ah, thank you. Um, and by the way, one thing I forgot to mention was that um, if you don't have a metal sink, if you have a, a, a um, what do you call it? Um, ceramic? A ceramic or... Uh, um, Metal? That white stuff that used... Um, no, Corian. Um, Corian. Uh, porcelain? Pars Cor porcelain, that's it, porcelain, right. Uh, right. Um, if you have a, a porcelain sink, then uh, what most people do is, uh, you again, you clean it out as well as you can, but then you get bins, and you put the bins in the sink, and you, and you wash the dishes and that kind of stuff for Passover in the bins. Um, because porcelain is really is porous and you can't really kosher it. Uh, at least that's what I was taught. Um, so um, it's a um, so so if that you know if you have porcelain uh, sinks, then that's that's what you should do. Um, in terms of stovetops, um, there is a, basically it works out uh, in the same sort of a way, namely that you um, the uh, you. You, um, uh, you 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 clean the stovetops as as well as you possibly can, maybe with steel wool, right? And then you uh, put them on. Uh, you, then you put them back on the oven, and you put the uh, the the, the um, uh, you know you light the, the various burners on it, uh, and you let that go for, well, maybe whatever uh, an hour at most. In other words, how long would you normally? What would be the longest that you would keep one of those burners on? A long time. How, how long would that be? I don't know. But Ethan Tucker this morning in a video he made about stovetops said you can leave them on for five minutes. So let's go with five minutes. Let's go with five minutes. Okay, that's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, so you leave them on. The basic idea is you leave them on until they get really hot, right? Um, and then you uh, and then let them cool off. And then you wash them one more time just to be safe. And then... And then again, don't use them for 24 hours. Okay. So do you not have to line them in any way? Like put 
any kind of liner on the stovetop? Well, again, I have seen that done. Yeah, uh, me too. Home. Yeah, and if that's their family's custom, then do that. Some people will put like aluminum foil, uh, you know, not on the uh, not on the stovetop. It's not on the uh, uh, on the metal part itself, but on the, the part that's around the burner, right? Um, again, just because there might have been food that would splash that splashed along, you know, uh, that that splashed around it. Um, so I've seen people do that. Um, I'm not sure, completely sure it's necessary. If you if you really you know, wash it again with with detergent, you wash it very carefully, and you um, and again let it let it sit for 24 hours without using it. Um, uh, I think that's enough. Thank you. Perfect. Thank sure. you so much. Sure. So um, just a couple of quick comments, and then another question. I. Um, when you started out, you said, so do whatever your family tradition is. I don't think that's going to work because my family tradition was very lax on this. I see. Okay. <laughs> well, not not. Okay. Then, then you will, you know. So I have to at least come up to your minimum standards, really. All right. Well, you know, you know what you're reminding me of, Gary? I, I'll take your, your point in just a moment. But um, I say to rabbinical students that, you know, the question is, do you wear tefillin during Chalm weight or not? Um, so I say, you know, there are different customs. Um, and if your family does one, you should follow whatever your family custom was. So one of my rabbinical students said, well, my father did not put on tefillin during Cholmoy. Of course, he didn't put on tefillin during the rest of the year either. <laughs> right? So so now what do I do? Right. right. Go ahead. Yes. So um, so that's the same thing. So like, I, I, I have to make my own customs up. Okay. Uh, um, so the other thing I was going to comment was back to Barry's concern. I have... I've been drinking out of a mug that, that I never use for Passover, but the reason that I don't use it for Passover is, is it's nicely glazed, but it's not completely glazed. There's a little patch that's exposed and the bottom is totally exposed. Nice. I don't I don't know if everything is always completely covered in glaze or not, and that's part right. of the issue too, right? So anywhere it's clearly exposed or anything where you obviously can't use it. That's um, correct. Yeah, where where it's where there's any exposure. Um, beyond the glaze, then clearly it cannot be kosher. Okay. Right. And then uh, I think the last the last thing I was going to comment is that that I think that the, the boiling water on grout, as long as you've done a reasonably good job of cleaning the grout to the best you can, most grout, unless it has cracks in it, mm -hmm. um, can certainly take the boiling water just as well as the tile can. Okay. Okay. Good. good. Thank you. Good. Avi. Hey, Rabbi Dorf. Uh, so I do have to point out one thing that in your in the RA guide for, for Pesach, it does say that between the burners should be covered if possible. It's a very strong should statement. So uh, I just had to put that out there for fun. Um, my, my actual question, though, is things that you use tangentially to the meal, like you know, the, the kos for nintzalat yadayim, my machronim, things like that. We have some nice ones that are not well glazed they're kind of porous ceramic style um would those be able to be used for pesach considering it's only cold and it's not actually directly used at well my name is used at the table but the you know the is not used at the table to use separately but the at, with handling bread involved i mean i the question is may you um given the fact that it's only used for cold water during the entire the entire year right um 
that's what I'm hearing. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah we, we, don't, we don't, I mean, because usually it's during, you know, yeah, we only bread most of the time because we try to avoid all that, all the rigmarole. <laughs> probably, yes. But, but I, I would tell you that uh, among the lines that I was talking about before with the glass dishes that my roommates and I used that one year, um, I think, you know, it's not just even just simply using a glass um, on Passover, a different, something it's basically to make a difference between Passover and the rest of the year. I mean, um, the, the, the ultimate answer is since it's only used for cold water. Yes. Okay. But that said, um, there's also the symbolic piece of this, right? There's the lucky piece of this. And then there's the symbolic piece of this. And, you know, if you can use anything else for it, just to indicate that this, this is a different time of year. Um, that's probably preferable. I'm always happy to look for an excuse to go shopping for more Judaica. So don't worry. Okay, you can. That's how, I mean, that's how you know you're a rabbinical student. Uh, right. Okay, uh, Rachel has a question, and then Gary. Um, yes, thank you very much, um, Rabbi. I know that coffee, um, the halacha of coffee, but I have an espresso maker that I absolutely am nuts about and must have on certain days. When that is the only thing that's used. And the and I know that the um, um, the coffee is you know kosher and it's not um, flavored. It's regular. It's just regular coffee. Can I can I use it? Is what is when my bottom line question? Yeah, if you if you if you have used it only for pure coffee, in other words, not flavored coffee, Correct. right? Throughout the entire year, then then sure, then you don't have to do anything. You just use it. Ah, thank you so much. I mean, you might clean it the way that you would clean it after using it, right? I mean, but it's... Yes. Uh, There's but. also a process of where you clean the whole machine out, um, which includes everything, the water and all of the machine. Um, and so I would do that and then use it. Good, good. No, that, that makes sense. Because basically... You're cleaning it to, as thoroughly as it can be cleaned is basically what you're telling me. Yes, indeed. Right. Good. Okay. That's fine. Thank you. Any Gary. other questions? Yeah, Gary. I have a question about the Seder plate. In the old days, we, we were carnivorous all the time uh-huh. and meat everything. But now we, we are not carnivorous. We have, we have, we're going to have a, the second Seder or second, at least second Seder, we're going to have fish. And we were planning to use our flesh, our milchig plates. And when I'm talking about the seder plate, um, do we, we do we put the, the the bone, the stank bone on it? What do we use in lieu of the um, the bone? I, I just read this recently. Actually, you can use a beet. A beet. Yes. Yeah. Vicious. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, because by the way, there are. Um, uh, there's an increasing number of vegetarians. And, uh, and so uh, the kinds of questions that you're asking is being, being asked um, many, many times more than it was 20 years ago. Right. Um, and so that's where a lot of the new customs have arisen to be a kind of symbolic of what it was, but not the actual thing um, because you're not, um, you know, because you're not eating meat. So it's, um, uh, but it sort of sort of looks like um, what the shank bone used to look like, and um, yeah. it, it's it's good enough because I mean even the shank bone itself is symbolic, right? It's symbolic right. of the entire animal, right? 
right? So, um, so you're just substituting a, 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 a non-meat uh, symbol for a meat symbol. Just one, one additional question on the, on the Seder plate. Um, we use, we got for our wedding, we got lots of Seder, a couple of Seder, Seder plates, but we also have some from our grandparents or parents. We have no idea what they used on that stuff. Right. Um, and it, I don't, it's that type of thing you can't kosher. You said if you wait a year, it's cool. It's, yeah. If you wait a year, it's cool. Yes. Especially because okay, whatever you. was, whatever was on the Seder plate was cold to begin with. Right. Right. right? So right. especially if you're waiting. Even if it's out of out of earthenware, if you wait, you know, wait a year, it's fine. Okay, good. Make my wife happy. Thank you. <laughs> sure. Uh, Diana, Larry. I think it's mainly me. So first of all, in in, in our house, Diane rules. So I have no say. <laughs> I know that story. <laughs> the, the story you tell about Marlon uh, when we first moved to Israel and we got invited to Rabbi Golinkin's house for a seder. And uh, at that time, his wife, uh, he had just written the uh, tshuva about kitniot for uh, for Jews in Israel, but not in his house, because his wife at the time wouldn't allow it <laughs> at all. It seems to be a common phenomenon. Okay. <laughs> when, we moved to, when we moved to Israel, and Diane was following, I think it was rabbinical assembly guidelines, and checking everything, did the knives have joints, did this, you know, what you could do, and of course, you that you would try to kosher anything wooden. And then we went to the local cauldron that, that is on every corner, not every corner, but the, uh, near the synagogues for koshering. And people brought all manners of things. Absolutely. Hmm. And nobody questioned anything. Really? Um, wow. Oh, yeah. Wooden, was, plastics. Yeah, it was the neighborhood Orthodox shul that was running it. And things that I wouldn't have dreamed of koshering. No problem. They went into the boiling water. They went out, and that was it. And, and finally, this morning, um, uh, Rabbi um, uh, Avi Khamiri, um talked about uh, an article from Rabbi Chaim Ovadia, um, uh, who is extraordinarily lenient in all matters. Right. I'm not asking you whether you approve or don't approve, but if you just Google it, you can find it, or if you want the article, I, I'll be happy to send it to anybody. Or you send it to me. I'm interested in seeing what, what you're doing. Yes. I'm going to... How to clean in half a day? Yeah. Okay. Well, no, that's not... That's not that uh, one? Well, I, I will put in the chat the one that I that I have. Great. Okay. Thanks. I, again, there are, I mean, you know, as I said from the very beginning, there are multiple ways of, um, of making Pesach, and multiple customs along this line. Passover, I think more than any other holiday that we have, has generated a lot of uh, customs that are unique to particular communities, for that matter, unique to particular families, right? And uh, and that's all good. I mean, that, that enriches our tradition. Um, but it also, uh, customs also affect law. And so the way that you, you know, you're supposed to make Passover, right? Everybody understands that that's going to be different from the rest of the year. How different from the rest of the year and how do you make it different? Um, there are variations, as you're hearing. Um, and it's, um, you know, so, I mean, that's why I said to you at the very beginning, if you're invited to somebody else's home, you know, this is, I guess, post-COVID, right? If you, you're invited to somebody else's home and you know that they 
understand what it means to keep kosher and to keep Passover. And they do it. Just and accept the invitation and don't ask questions. Right? Um, because the way they do it will probably be somewhat different than the way you do it. And it doesn't matter. I did not mean to cut you off, but oh, we, that's have, we have a question about microwaves and how you kosher a microwave. Oh, you, um, you kosher a microwave the same for Passover, the same way you do during the rest of the year. Um, then there was something got into a microwave and, um, you know, and, and you need to kosher it for some reason. Um, you take, uh, you, again, you take, um, a, 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 like a, a, a coffee cup or something like that that can be, you know, that can have boiling water in it. Uh, and you put water in it and you boil it. Um, and in other words, you bring it to a boil so that the steam goes off. Well, first of all, I'm sorry. You first of all clean out the microwave, right? And then you put a, a, a cup in it and you boil water in it, uh, so that the steam gets through the, uh, gets into the, you know, into the metal of the microwave, um, and then let it, let it cool down and wash it out one more time and it's done. And again, for, uh, uh, if you're going from, from regular use to Passover use, don't use it for 24 hours. Which is really good this year because we have Shabbos in between. So it's very easy to do, not use any of these things for 24 hours. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh, any final questions? Oh, Jennifer has a question. She's waving her hand. Um, how are we managing pay, um, Shabbat? Um, <laughs> how are we managing this? I'm coming to your house or? Rabbi Klinkfeld just said, I mean, Rabbi Dorf is more than welcome to answer this question. No, no, no. I was going to say the same thing you were about to say. Rabbi Klinkfeld just sent out an extensive email on this. Um, so, I mean, there. There's- uh, I'll look at that. Yeah, you can okay. look at that. There's, I mean, there's. There are very easy, quick answers that that he gives as well, um, like using paper and plastic, eating outside, not having challah, and using egg matzah. I mean, there are some things that are just very easy to do, and okay. other things that go into more detail. Got it. I, can I, I ask thought, more questions. Oh, I, I think oh. I think that our article that you sh- you should definitely read it. It was excellent in terms of uh, describing, and also there's been some suggestions in terms of Balbusta doing the uh, fr- that Friday night meal. Uh, so there's been some some uh, suggestions, and I think that you might want to look at that. Yeah, I just haven't had a chance to look at it. Can I ask one? I wanted to ask, oh. sorry. Can I-, I wanted to ask uh, Rabbi Dorf if, um, if from Shabbos, at, once you finish Havdalah and you go into Seder, um, do you, in your practice, Trans and with me, I've always been raised where you transfer the light. You know, you have one of those big candles. Yeah, it's still Shabbos, and then you then have gala, so you can. I'm assuming you can cook, or at least in our house. Um, but because the stovetop is on manual, it's uh, the transferring of of light from the candle to the stovetop. Is that what is your interpretation? Well, what. Well, first of all, I mean, it is the case. I thank you for mentioning it. It is the case that because we have this three-day yontif thing, right, Shabbos and then two days of yontif, it, it would be very, um, uh, it would be very wise to get one of these long, uh, long-lasting candles um, for um, as many as three days. They have them, um, and because then what's going to happen is that on on Saturday night you don't make the regular havdalah. Havdalah is part of kiddush on Saturday night. Um, 
and the and so you you say kiddush and then and and you'll you'll see it in the liturgy in the, in the Haggadah. Um, you'll see it and uh, and it's that point and, and of course you don't you don't blow it off you, you don't blow it out right because uh, on Yantov you're allowed to transfer fire but you're not allowed to extinguish fire. Um, so uh, and that three day candle will also be used for uh, lighting the you know the the candle for the um, for the second day of Yantov. Um, uh, now, in terms of you, you have a gas stove, stove top. Is that what you're saying, Rachel? Uh, yes. I see. So, and, and do you have um, um, what do they call it? Um, pilot light. A pilot light. Thank you. A pilot light. Uh, what it is is that you just turn on and put the candle or the next to it, and it just lights up when it's on yeah. manual. So that's yeah. Okay. So you could. I mean. You know, depending upon what's what's the easiest thing to do, I mean, you could um, you could use the three day candle itself, or you could take a like a Hanukkah candle and uh, and and transfer it from uh, the three day candle to light the pilot light, um, and then just let the Hanukkah candle blow out. I mean, you know, um, put it in the sink or something and let it just uh, extinguish itself. How do you do with the stove? Do you just keep it on really? Low, almost like a blech, or do you? Uh... Yeah, uh, and if you have a gas stove, then then that's probably what you'd have to do. Yeah. Um, although, yeah, if you have a gas stove, then that's probably what you have to do. So Jennifer had a follow up question, and then Diane has something to say. Um, so I, you know, I have started doing this over the past few years, and I don't know if it's because I read it or heard it, but. Um, because it's just Dan and me, um, we kosher a certain amount of things. We clean out many of the cabinets, but then we tape the cabinets. And most of what we do happens on this one counter. You know, if we had kids around and things like that, it'd be a different thing. That's that's really okay, right? <laughs> yeah, because see, the thing, is, the answer is yes. And see, because the reason is this: um, there are three. Uh, laws in regard to this. One is you're not allowed to eat chametz. Second is it, it may not be found within your home. That's why you sell it, right? Um, so that is even though, and then and you may not be seen. So what people um, very often do is um, you you sell your chametz and you have it all in whatever cabinet it is, and you put scotch tape or something. Uh, across the cabinet, so that remind, just to remind you not to open it, and so you're not seeing the chametz because it's in the cabinet somewhere, right? Or you know, if you if you need to, you know, if you need, depending on what's what's going on, you know, you, uh, if you need to put it on the floor somewhere in the in the in the den or something, or, or in a study that you're not going to use. Another, if you don't have enough cabinet space, is what I'm saying, right? You, if, so cover it so that people don't see, you don't see it. Right, because that's the third thing, um, and then yes, then the rest of it is, um, you know, is out of sight, out of mind, basically. Yeah, Diane. So this is a solution for gas stoves that I learned from Hannah Golinkin, who was who was David Golinkin's wife, is no longer, but was, right. and this is what she taught me to do: you take a match, you put the match to the stove and simultaneous with lighting the match, you shut the burner and you've actually transferred the fire from the 
burner to the match and then you put the match down someplace and let it burn out. Yeah, that's the same sort of thing I was saying with the Hanukkah candle. If you have a lot, if you have a long enough match, that will do it. Right. If you have a short match, you're going to burn your fingers. But it's a but if you if you get one of these long stem right. matches, yeah, that's probably even better than a Hanukkah candle. Right. Yeah, but yeah. We have we've had an electric well, stove. I, I think the point that, that Diane was making, the point Diane was making was that's a way to be able to turn off the gas burner, not just to be able to start it. Because you're oh. not transferring it from the burner to the match, and then the match can be set aside to go out on its own. That's right. That way, that way you don't have to leave a gas flame burning, which seems to me to be very unsafe. I see. I see. I didn't real I didn't know that. Okay, thank you. I mean, as I said, we as I was just saying, we've had an electric stove for decades now. So um, the last time we had a gas stove was when we were in New York. So that was 50 years ago. Um, so I, I'm afraid I just didn't, I, I forgot. That. Yes. So follow what Diane just said. But she okay. didn't get New York. So what did she know? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Rebecca has one final question and then we will wrap. Um. Jennifer's comment about, you know, using part of her kitchen just kind of reminded me, I thought I would ask for a college student who shares an apartment with non-Jews, you know, yeah. the student's gonna, you know, she'll sell her hummets, she's gonna, you know, do her things with her, her one or two shelves in the fridge and the microwave, but obviously the roommates will, you know, be around doing their thing. Is there any, you know, words of wisdom of what she should focus on if, you know, if any of what they're doing or she sees in the fridge, you know, it, you know, she's, it's not hers, but how right, you know that situation. I mean, you know, I can tell you what she should not do. Don't start yelling and screaming at them. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, and don't, and don't make it look as if, you know, don't, don't have her try to make, um, uh, you know, try to make uh, duties on, on her roommates that, really are not at all reasonable for them, right? Um, so, I mean, uh, have her do whatever seems to be the, you know, the best that she can do to make Passover in her apartment, right? So, uh, so, so I mean, she should probably explain to her roommates um, what's, what's going on and why she's doing it differently now than she did during the other part of the year, right? She probably should explain that. Um, I had, uh, but other than that, I mean, Whatever seems to be possible, I think is really the issue. Um, I had a Catholic roommate my second year of college, and um, and um, he, um, my mother had uh, made a hamantaschen for Passover, and she sent us the hamantaschen, and uh, Bob couldn't eat them because he had given up sweets for Lent. Or then, about uh, about a month later. His mother sent cookies that she had made for <laughs> Easter, right? But it was Cholamoy Pesach. So, <laughs> right. I mean, that's how you learn about other people's, you know, other people's traditions. And it's really fine. I mean, that's the, um, just, you know, just have her explain, you know, that Passover is coming and there are all these kinds of special rules for it. And I'm not expecting you to know all of them. I just understand that I'm going to be doing some, some things somewhat differently over the next week or nine days than I do normally. That's all. 
When I was in college just a few years ago, um, one of the things that that I would do with my roommates was I would cover the pantry in paper. Um, so like if there's a piece of paper here, you could lift it up with a flap almost like it wasn't taped down all the way. But that way, the Passover stuff was was visible and usable to me. And my roommate, who actually happened to be Jewish, but uh, who wasn't keeping Passover, uh, it was still easy for her to get to her stuff, but it wasn't in my way of Pesach. Um, Mm. And then in terms of like utensils and pots and pans and those kinds of things, I had one pot, one pan, and I used paper and and plastic at that point. Now you could use like compostable utensils and those kinds of things, um, but stuff you can throw away so she doesn't have to worry about that. Um, But if that's helpful, I'm also happy to talk to her if she wants if she wants to talk it through or she can talk to rabbi parnick and we can have her help her um okay well you all know rabbi dorf so if you have any other questions you can feel free to ask him um, i'm not going anywhere or feel free to ask me but he's he's the person i would go to if i had a question um and thank you for being here, Rabbi Dorf. I know it's uh, it's you've done this multiple times just today, so I appreciate you That's doing right. it for all of us. And uh, hope to see. And, and you will get Rabbi Chance is going to send you the link, or I, guess I did already. You did already. So in the chat, uh, you can yeah. see what the guide to Pesach is that the Rabbinical Assembly has put out. Uh, so for some of the specifics, you can see there. Exactly. Yeah. All right, everyone. Lila Tov. Hope to see you soon. And. Uh, Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. So great. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.